am an asshole. I know a lot of you are probably nodding along with that statement, and some of you may be able to come up with some more choice metaphors. But even if you like me 90% of the time, you have to admit I'm kind of an asshole. It's a spectrum, really. A scale, if you will. A scale I play like a virtuoso jazz pianist, with total piece of shit on one end and just kind of a dickhead on the other. But I think asshole is where I land more often than not. On my best days, I'm a bit of a son of a bitch. I say that's me at my best because I'd never dare count myself among the elite brotherhood of magnificent bastards, but also because while assholes are kind of hit and miss in how welcome they are in polite society, everybody loves a son of a bitch. Today's film is a beloved biopic so influential that it almost replaced its subject in the minds of the public. When you picture General Patton, you probably envision George C. Scott and his piercing eyes twinkling just beneath those perfectly fluffed eyebrows and well below that masterfully crafted hairline. When you quote General Patton, you try to sound like George C. Scott. I'd bet real money that the average military history buff doesn't know what Patton's voice sounded like, and the ones that do still prefer George C. Scott. There are parts of this movie where Patton looked a little sad. Did you kind of want to give Patton a hug? Nope. You kind of wanted to give George C. Scott a hug. Because, as we learn in today's episode, Patton said some kind of fucked up shit and probably should have felt bad from time to time. The movie doesn't exactly skirt those problematic quotes, but it doesn't really stop to unpack them either. While it doesn't sanitize one of history's most famous assholes, it does sand down his edges a touch. Because all real Americans may not love the sting of battle, but we all kind of do love a son of a bitch. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So wade into the enemy, spill their blood, shoot them in the belly, along with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we go through this best picture, best actor, best director, best screenplay winning classic like crap through a goose, with a legendary opening monologue, the largest American flag ever committed to film, and a beloved musical score by none other than honorary fourth host of the Danger Close podcast, Jerry Goldsmith, it's 1970s Franklin J. Schaffner directed, Francis Ford Coppola penned, epic tale of jingoism and PG-rated obscenity, Patton. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here as usual with my partners, Katie and Liam. And today we're here to talk about a very famous war film, Patton, 1970. And Katie's here with her mission briefing. It took General Frank McCarthy almost 20 years to get Patton made. He went through struggles just getting permission to make the film from Patton's family and the U.S. Department of Defense. But after much perseverance and a lot of cajoling, he was eventually able to pull the film together. 
It is somewhat based on the biography Patton, Ordeal, and Triumph by Ladislas Farago and General Omar Bradley's memoir, A Soldier Story. Written by a young Francis Ford Coppola, then polished by Edmund H. North, the film found its director in Franklin J. Schaffner, whose previous film, Planet of the Apes, was a smash hit. The most critical part of the film, of course, who is to play Patton? And while the role was offered to a wide slate of very famous leading men of the time, such as Burt Lancaster, John Wayne, and Robert Mitchum, it ended up going to the perfect person for the role, George C. Scott. While he initially turned it down, Scott finally agreed and was said to have identified with Patton's intensity and drive. Despite coming out in a decidedly anti-war time period in America, the film was an instant classic. It won seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Screenplay, Editing, and famously, Best Actor, which Scott declined, calling the Oscars a two-hour meat parade and stating that he was not in competition with other actors. Scott was widely praised for his performance, and by many accounts, it was fairly accurate to the real general. And we are definitely going to talk about George C. Scott. But I think the best way for us to start the show out is to talk a little bit about the history around Patton and the man himself. And Dan, I know you have much information. Our research today is brought to you by our regular contributors, Mike Andrews and Micah. I always screw up his last name, but he's our army captain who's well-versed in history. And Allie Pitts wrote in a little bit about uh, Field Marshal Montgomery, which we may get to later. George Smith Patton Jr., born 1885, is the titular Patton of this film. Importantly, Patton came from a long history of military service in his family, which I won't get into, but his early ancestor, Hugh Mercer, eventually became a general under George Washington's Continental Army. So again, a, a long history, aristocratic family, and lots of military service. He was raised pretty wealthy, kind of spoiled, did poorly in school at first. He was convinced that in the past he had witnessed war and he did grow up, you know, learning about Eastern religion and philosophy. He was homeschooled by his aunt. He liked the Iliad, the Bhagavad Gita and the Quran. So he had a pretty wide education, although again, at 17, he attended the Virginia Military Institute and did not do that well at first, but was always excelled in athletics and drill and anything physical. He ended up going to the 1912 Summer Olympics as a pentathlete and finished fifth, but it was somewhat controversial. Some of it was based on they weren't sure if he had shot through the same hole he had shot previously, etc. He also insisted on firing his own rifle as opposed to the smaller, I think, 22s that they shot. So kind of gave himself a disadvantage in that. Point being, he was always a very competitive person growing up. Of course, after his first year, he ended up going to West Point, which is where he graduated, so the U.S. Military Academy, as it's also called. Received a commission as second lieutenant in the cavalry after graduating from West Point. And the Patton we see in World War II was a very experienced officer. His first military experience was during the Pancho Villa expedition. So this is an interesting period in history. If you're not familiar, in 1916, Pancho Villa's rebel forces raided Columbus, New Mexico. They actually crossed the border, raided this town, and killed several Americans. 
they eventually sent the 13th Cavalry into Mexico to hunt down Pancho Villa. Fast forward to World War One. Patton was stationed in Front Royal, Virginia, but when Pershing became commander of the American Expeditionary Force, Patton requested to join his command staff, and he was appointed as captain as a result and joined Pershing in World War I. During his time abroad, he became very interested in tanks. Uh, he first started working with the light tanks, those kind of mini tanks that you saw that the French and the Germans had, and he established the first light tank school in 1917. Took part in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive in September of 1917 and was wounded by German machine guns. He was saved by PFC Joe Angelo, who received the Distinguished Service Cross for the effort. And the quote from Patton is, The bullet went into the front of my leg and came out just at the crack of my bottom, about two inches to the left of my rectum. It was (laughs) fired at about 50 meters so made a hole about the size of a silver dollar when it came out. I mean, that's a no joke wound to have a silver dollar exit wound in between your leg and your butt. That's a that's that some serious horrible. shit. He had a pretty good relationship with Eisenhower and they met they met in DC at the General Staff College after World War 1. One event that is well prior to this film and to World War II was, I'd never heard of this, but the protesting veterans of the Bonus Army in July of 1932 was basically tens of thousands of vets demanded early advancement of their cash bonuses from serving in World War I. Also an instance of the strangest bonus that the U.S. government ever gave out where... In 1924, federal legislation awarded veterans a bonus certificate that was to be redeemed in 1945 for cash. But by 1932, the Great Depression had forced many of these veterans into desperate situations, and they sought early payment of their bonuses as a way out of poverty. I've never heard of a government bonus related to military service that was awarded and then took 21 years to mature. That's super weird, and I've never heard of that. I think it was mostly the thing at the time, like with war bonds and like, I I know like my grandparents on my mom's side who grew up in that time, like it was normal for them to gift me a savings bond Mm -hmm. every year. So for sure. It's just a strange and unique thing. Yeah. It's not a good idea. Redeem this coupon in 1945 for money. It's like a reverse expiration date. Right. And I think for those of us who witnessed what happened just a year ago, this situation was way crazier because all these protesters were veterans and MacArthur sent in Patton with, and those troopers had tear gas and bayonets and it doesn't describe what they did with them. But I'm like, (laughs) I'm assuming had they actually stabbed people with bayonets, especially veterans, that that would be in the research and that would have made uh, quite a stink. But anyways, pretty crazy situation. Patton was not happy about it. And matter of fact, he reached out to D'Angelo, the PFC who had saved him uh, from his wounds previously and told him not to go because it was going to be a shit show and it would look bad with the press and everything. And I think he successfully lobbied to not have him go. But yeah, kind of a crazy situation. When World War II erupted in Europe, the American army began preparations for the eventuality of the U.S. entering the war. Patton again worked to grow the still young armored force. He was promoted to brigadier general and later major general. His units were involved in multiple large-scale maneuvers, with him receiving notable press attention, even appearing on the cover of Life magazine. When the U.S. entered the war, Patton was assigned to help plan the Allied invasion of North Africa, Operation Torch. 
The operation would involve three separate task forces, East, Middle, and West. Patton would eventually command the Western Task Force, which landed in Morocco, which is what we see at the beginning of the film. Before we go any further, I want to talk about George C. Scott. Because if you don't have George C. Scott, you don't have this movie. And to lighten the mood a bit after all of the history, I'm going to tell you a little story about my experience watching this. Because I hadn't seen it before. At least not the whole thing. I'd seen bits and pieces. When I was very small, The Rescuers Down Under came out. (laughs) (laughs) Is George C. Scott in that? Speaking of Patton, The Rescuers Down Under. Just wait. So, I loved that movie and still to this day quote the phrase pea soup because it makes me laugh every fucking time. And George C. Scott is the bad guy in that. And he's giving a very patent like performance. Like his it's very loud and brash and explosive. What what's the what's the animal or character in that? He's a person, I think. So George C. Scott plays McLeach, who is a poacher. In the Australian Outback. Nice. And he makes no attempt at doing anything like an Australian accent. It's just George C. Scott. I'm gonna kill her. I'm gonna kill that dumb, slimy, sucking salamander. And so I put in the movie and he gives his, you know, this initial scene with the speech. And I'm like, oh my God. It's McLeach. <laughs> it just, it, until about 45 minutes into the movie, then I was able to kind of like separate these two characters, these like character from the voice. Because I, I watched The Rescuers Down Under uh, so many, hundreds of times as a child. So he's just inextricably linked with that for me. But once I was watching Patton, I was like, eh, this is just George C. Scott, isn't it? This is just how he was. Well, it also uh, kind of strikes me as, Funny because I was watching it trying to separate Patton from uh, from Buck Turgidson. Yes, that's the other Dr. one. Dr. Strangelove. Right. Who is like really goofy Patton. Mr. President, I'm beginning to smell a big fat commie rat. Like if Patton were younger and hornier and goofier. And with better teeth. <laughs> God, the teeth. The teeth in this movie entirely were all upsetting. (laughs) Sorry, I just had to say it. They were upsetting teeth. I'm not I I guess I don't pay attention to his teeth that much, but I don't know. They were probably period appropriate. You didn't notice his teeth? They're like brown. Yeah, they're like, the teeth are very prominent in this movie. And obviously an effect. Like, And I, I couldn't find any corroborating research that said that Patton famously had bad teeth, but he obviously did. Otherwise. That was just what teeth looked like in the 40s. No, dude. And so Buck Turgidson came several years before his Patton performance. Mm-hmm. So I agree. I was, I realized halfway through the film, I was like, oh yeah, he does do that role. And it was... It's like it was it was very similar, but also entirely different. It speaks to how great an actor George C. Scott was. To me, he he seems like an actor who threw himself entirely into his work. Yes. And I and I think I, I think he could very easily get typecast, but I also think that he did find nuances of difference between similar roles, which people you know, somebody like John Wayne might not necessarily do. 
Right. Who lobbied for this role and the... John Wayne would have been bad in this role. Yeah, I think the producer was the one who was against having John Wayne in it. Yeah, Frank McCarthy was like, no. Because Frank McCarthy, the who was involved in Hollywood and also was a general mm-hmm. <laughs> during World War II, as I talked about in my mission briefing, he's the one who gets this movie made. Did he just really like Patton a lot? So McCarthy once said that he made this film to study this unique man, not to lionize him, only to study him and say, my God, what a fascinating character this was. So I think it's more that McCarthy was both a high ranking general and, you know, involved in theater in Hollywood and wanted to portray this incredibly dramatic person. Mm-hmm. Because, as I said in my mission briefing, there were a couple of different generals who watched this who knew Patton and Bradley. And they were like, yeah, this is kind of how it was. It's kind of who Patton was. So there's an interesting corroboration that George C. Scott's performance, which I don't think was informed by anything other than maybe reading the, the two books this is based on. Certainly not vocal research. No, no. Because Patton's, (laughs) thanks to the miracle of YouTube, you can see speeches that Patton gave. Through our blood and your bonds, we crushed the Germans before he got here. And he, he sounds much closer to like, I don't know. Lincoln? Jimmy Stewart? The reviews of the time characterized him as, and I am quoting here, Mickey Mouse. Yeah, I think that's a little exaggerated, kind of like when I kept hearing that Stalin's voice was kind of high pitched, and then I went, I found a speech and listened to it. And I'm like, okay, I, I think people remember this in an exaggerated way. I, I think more importantly, George C. Scott went to the level where he was, it sounds like he was almost full method on this character. He was full drunk. When he made this, that's that's what he was. So, so there's several <laughs> things going on. Yes, he had an he had an alcoholism problem that definitely affected the shoot and sometimes made him miss days. But of course, being indispensable, he kind of could play that card whenever he wanted because they weren't about to replace him. But he also was quoted, I'm paraphrasing, but as sort of really embodying Patton. So, from an acting perspective, I don't know how full method he went, but. Morgan Paul, this is his first film, and he plays, he gets killed halfway through the movie, but he plays the aide. Yeah, he plays the aide. So he was in Blade Runner. He plays the very first Blade Runner in the film, very famously, and probably his biggest role ever. So, I, of course, I instantly recognized him, but he's very young, and this is his first role. And he was quoted as saying that after the third stunt that George C. Scott pulled on him, he basically told him to fuck off. Like, he was like, don't come up to me. If you see me at a restaurant, don't come up and fucking talk to me. And George C. Scott's response was, oh, I just lost my aid. And he's like, no, I'll finish the movie, but, like, I don't want to have anything to do with you outside of our actual work and filming. So, it sounds like he was pretty intensely on a method like i am Patton kind of no that that was that was just george c scott Mm. george c scott was notoriously um difficult intense to work with in the same way that i think now we would consider i would say despite the flack i might get for it joaquin phoenix is in the same spirit 
of performer as George C. Scott. Hmm. And uh, Heath, Heath Ledger would be another one where they are so very invested in their acting performances that it it can affect their mental health. Because George C. Mm. Scott was very open about the fact that being an actor seriously affected his mental health. And one of the big reasons he decided after rejecting the role and then reaccepting it is that he... He said that the character was unique because Patton's individualism and his understanding that you live alone and you die alone. Patton knew it and he lived it. But foremost, I believe this man was an individual in the deepest sense of the word. If that is the only message, it's the goddamnedest, finest one we have come along in a very long time. It is my conviction that had Patton been in charge, the war would have been perceptibly shortened with thousands and thousands less casualties. Our position today would have been different in regards to Russia. So he does hate Russia. <laughs> Scott said that Patton possessed qualities and elements in his personality that are sadly lacking in men today. Soy boys. I don't agree with that. <laughs> I think that's nonsense, but you know, that's me. Another interesting parallel, I think, between Scott and Patton is that Scott was a Marine, he had been in the Marine Corps. And was 17 and just finishing up basic training, I think, when World War II ended. So he kind of missed the boat on World War II, literally. And so he said he really identified when Patton says an entire world at war and I'm left out of it. He really identified with that statement. So I I think in a lot of ways, this was George C. Scott's way of feeling like he took some kind of part in world war ii since he was a contemporary yeah there's there's a certain measure of um catharsis Mm -hmm. in scott's performance right you know it almost sounds like not that it wasn't a great performance because it was Mm -hmm. but it almost sounds like a role and an actor sort of like being meant for one another right kind of like if you look at Peter O'Toole playing Alan Swan in My Favorite Year. I don't know if you've seen it, but he he plays uh, a washed up swashbuckling alcoholic. That sounds about right. Right. But it's not even based on him. It's based on like Errol Flynn or something. But in continuing my recommendations of Darren Aronofsky films, it's like Natalie Portman in Black Swan. Does she have mental health issues? Is that why you say that? She's talked about the dual nature that she's had to maintain because she made... um. Her first like super big film was The Professional, and she was very young in that. But mm. she's Luke Besant is known for making some interesting films, and Natalie Portman has talked about how, whether it was through the film or through the audience, she's been very sexualized throughout her career because that was her first big hit, and she learned at a very early age to disassociate, which is a lot of what the black swan film is about disassociation. So it's, it works. And I think she does a great job in general. Do you think that that is a good thing for actors when you get some kind of big role that you have a really strong personal connection to, or is that more of a minefield? Like Liam, what's your experience with that? Is it easier to play something that is like so far removed from you that you have no connection to it? Or is it easier the other way around? I am so fascinated to hear your answer. So it, it really kind of depends on on what 
what role I'm 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 approaching this from because sure. as a director, when George C. Scott walks in the door to play Patton, I'm like, well, my work here is done. Right. This bitch going to direct itself. And just to cut in for one moment, George C. Scott was known for being someone who required very little direction. Once he knew the character he was playing. Yeah, it's just like, tell him where to stand. Exactly. And it's, you know, like you you get those every once in a while, but not terribly often. As an actor, I've, I've kind of done both. Ooh, um, probably one of my favorites was I played Creon in Jean Anouy's adaptation of Antigone, which is kind of a heavy character, big, imposing, you know, very booming, thunderous sort of very confident speeches and hard opinions and tries to get people on to understand where he's coming from. But in the end, like it's my way or the highway, which I can relate to in a lot of ways, shapes and forms. I don't believe you. I feel like that's so different from your personality. I know. Right. But man, I knocked that motherfucker out of the park. It was good. I was really good in that role. On the opposite end of the spectrum, and we might have talked about this a little bit at one point or another, but my most recent role was I I played Lenny in Of Mice and Men. Hmm. Okay. Which could not be further from me in most ways, except we're the biggest dude in the room in 99 out of 100 rooms that we happen to be in. And shucking modesty is, is out the window. I nailed that shit too, but it took a lot more work. <laughs> And, you know, like a lot of the lines were repeating themselves, you know, and and very similar sort of like, tell me about the rabbits, George, sort of that line is said like 17 different times. But it was also just like a completely different mindset that I'm not used to operating under. So going from somebody who is like almost like psychopathically competent to somebody who is completely incompetent at everything cannot pet something without killing it incompetent like that is about as big a, a a juxtaposition as i can think of and doing the thing that you're not that doesn't come naturally is harder is it more rewarding the payoff is probably more rewarding the experience is not because the experience for me was a lot of self-doubt and second guessing and shit, I'm not doing it right. And how am I going to do this? I can't do this, man. I'm really not used to like putting myself in this kind of headspace. It's a very uncomfortable and rocky sort of process. But in the end, if people are like, holy shit, that was amazing. If you know, it's amazing while you're doing it, you're like, fuck yeah, it was. Thank you. Yeah, you're amazing too. Good job. Thanks for coming out. Like, but if it's something where it's just like you've been struggling with it the whole time and the final product happens to be the same reaction where they're like, that was great. And you're like, oh my God, really? Because I fucking was terrified the entire time. Right. So George C. Scott was known for having, like we've talked about issues, both with alcohol, but he also talked about how acting in general was psychologically damaging. And I can see that for someone like him, because with this role, he obviously is so invested. Every pore is putting out Patton in this. And I think mm -hmm. that's very visible. Did you guys get that? Did you feel like 
I wasn't in the particularly best mood because it's the end of the year and I'm an accountant and shit sucks right now for me work-wise. And I put it on and even though I was very frustrated, I'm watching it I'm like, God damn it, this guy is too good at this role. <laughs> you can't deny how intense his performance is and how accurate it feels, even though I know nothing about Patton as a human. And his uh, family who pushed a long time against ever having anything like this made, loved this movie and loved George C. Scott's portrayal of Patton. And I'm talking about his wife had passed by this time, but his son and daughter watched it and they both said that it was, oh, you really captured Patton. So, yeah, I think that based on what I read, there's an interesting juxtaposition here of was the character well-written as this idea that everyone had of Patton and how he came off to strangers and coworkers and stuff and competitors like Bradley versus who the real man was. And that's a complicated question, I think, because again, I haven't read his biography or anything, but he doesn't appear like a very personable person. It seems that his whole life is consumed by this obsession at leading troops in combat and we'll get into his beliefs on reincarnation and all that, yeah. but the mania, that's the what mania. Like, right? right. So he feels a bit like a caricature. And I know that the real Patton was also an intense individual that probably in real life in some ways felt like a caricature of a person and cursed so much more. But at the same time, this production while well-intentioned had a lot of pretty huge roadblocks put in their way. For one, while McCarthy really wanted a Patton's family's blessing to do this film, but also they really needed the U.S. military, the DOD's support. So for one, they unfortunately approached the family the day of or the day after his widow had passed. So it was really bad timing, and that really turned off the family because... Sorry, your mom's dead. Can we make a movie about your dead dad, too? And more specifically, they were requesting access to all his diaries and personal writing so that they could really do a good job of writing him from an internal personal perspective, which the family denied them access to, did not agree to the making of the film until way later, and the U.S. Army and the DOD in deference to the family, did not give them access to any U.S. military vehicles or any kind of, you know, the normal collaboration that the D that the Pentagon and the DOD would have with a film production like this, because they were like, you know what, if the family can't give you the blessing, then we can't either. Well, that's what they'd like you to believe anyway. And also, Patton is such a complicated person, and he made... Very controversial. As is evidenced in the film some really awkward, to say the least, statements. I can see how the DOD was like, yeah, we're just not going to get involved in that and say no. You guys haven't heard the fringe conspiracy theories, at least here they're oh, fringe, God. but apparently like there was a book that was published that got like huge write-ups in British newspapers that are like, oh, by the way, the U.S. government killed Patton. No. What? Yeah. Okay. That's that is, you can do some do some digging on it. I don't want to get in the weeds on this, but I just want to like drop that bomb off and then exit the room. I also feel like if you take the JFK assassination and Patton's death and for the sake of argument assume that both of them were conspiracies where the government was involved and they wanted him dead, 
JFK's was timely and he was killed in time to stop him from doing quote unquote, you know, bad things or whatever. But Patton was not <laughs> like if you were going to kill Patton, you needed to kill him way earlier in the war. I agree that like if you're going to kill Patton, you're going to do it in more way than like you crash your car into his and he suffers grievous wounds. Yeah, and again, like, why after the war? He made all his controversial comments right. and he got in fights with Eisenhower and Bradley and all that, like, during the war. I think it had a lot to do with him instigating problems with the Russians, and he was turning on it and making a lot of vocal statements about the U.S. government's mishandling of World War II. We'll get into that, because there's a lot to get into there. I just think it's fascinating that there is a segment of, who knows, even possibly our listenership, that's like, oh no, they killed Patton. So before we turn to the film, uh, the last thing I was going to say about sort of the point of view and the perspective of the film is that Bradley and Patton kind of hated each other. Bradley hated Patton. That's what I read. I never read anything about how Patton felt about Bradley, but that Bradley was, they said at certain points he feared him. And I was like, Eh, I bet he more felt anxiety around him because he was a, a bomb waiting to go off at any possible moment with his own crazy schemes. Right. And so because a lot of this is based on General Bradley's book, that does two things. One, it overemphasizes, well, arguably Patton's downsides because there are a lot of things, again, like his anti-Semitism, which we'll get into in a little bit, that isn't really covered in the film. So you could have shown a much worse portrayal of Patton based on real life. But the other thing is that Bradley is shown as this. Oh, shucks. Well, not only that, but he's also like way more level headed, is getting promoted and doing well in the army, seems to be well liked. He is like the nicer of the two. And like, that's very obviously kind of coming from Bradley's own opinion of himself. But I feel like Bradley is set up as the and and this is what i read universally through the many reviews and histories and all the stuff i read is that bradley and patton were two halves of what you need to make a military whole and that bradley was methodical forward thinking and concerned a little bit more with his troops than than Patton was like that Patton considered his troops to be his own appendages whereas Bradley looked at them as their own human beings I and I think in this movie they very much seem like they are two two halves of the same coin like if you're going to perpetrate war there's a couple of different ways to perpetrate it and these two guys are coming at it from very different angles and I can see having worked in the professional world how okay well it's not that you're necessarily better than me it's just that your angle of attack is probably not going to work in this situation whereas mine will and vice versa yeah and, and i don't doubt that that is also true it's just that imagine that the production had had access to Patton's personal journals i imagine the portrayal of both bradley and Patton would have looked a lot different and probably you know certain things would have been toned down and certain things would have been brought up what did you guys think of Carl Malden? Carl Malden is Bradley. I always love Carl Malden. Me too. So it's like a weird blind spot. Like, I, I always enjoy the performances that Carl Malden gives, but I don't really see a lot of range from him. He, he seems to be either he either gravitates towards or gets cast in a similar sort of role. 
which is not a bad thing. It kept him working for goddamn ever. And each role is, you know, again, not to like cast aspersions on anybody, but like sort of the way John Wayne like approached the roles, not necessarily as a, how can I stretch myself as an actor? But like, how is this line supposed to be said in this moment? And what's the best delivery that I can give it like this. And Carl Malden does that, but not in as cartoonish a way as John Wayne might. And one of the things that was praised in reviews about this in regards to Carl Malden was thank God he looks like Omar Bradley. (laughs) No, I think, I think it might've been the daily, the New York daily news that mentioned that he kinds of discards his character actor sensibilities in this and he gives a unique performance which is not what they expected at the time from carl malden so i think he stepped up his game in this one and i think that you you needed someone with that capability next to george c scott otherwise the performance is going to fall you're just going to get buried it works with morgan paul as captain jensen his aide because he's just in real life, an aide would not have that much to say or that much personality. He's just going to be a yes, a young yes man, right? Like, generally speaking. Perfect time to ask you this question. Is it normal for an aide to be that old? Well, I, w- which one? Because Morgan Paul's not very old in this. The second one. The second guy. The brown noser. Oh, the higher ranking, the colonel. I think as you go up in rank... Again, this goes back to conversations we've had about like the rank structure at the Pentagon. The higher up you go, there are generals who are aides to other generals in certain situations. So it's not abnormal necessarily as a general, for example, goes up in rank, but any staff officer to get older and higher ranking aides as well, because also they're going to have corresponding duties that are going to be of higher caliber. It seems like that's a valid career path. You're like... It's good for your resume, for sure. If you look at the military as being its own kind of corporation, Mm -hmm. being an aide de camp and being really fucking good at it is its own level of skill. Like that's like being an administrative assistant or the the most dreaded word, a secretary. And if you're really good at that, man, that is invaluable for someone of the general's level, someone who can manage all the boring nonsense and still bring it together. If Mike or someone else who's actually been in the army, especially as an officer at these levels can correct me, but my logical conjecture here would be because oftentimes I'm like, why is a captain driving this guy around? Like that's a job that any enlisted guy could be doing. But I think the point of an aide de camp is more like, yeah, when he doesn't specifically have a driver assigned to him, the captain can also drive him around. But the point is, he has a college degree. He knows how to write. So if he needs to type up letters, do more secretarial work, like that kind of thing, like the, it's an educated person who knows about army leadership, who has a certain level of training. He's a captain in the army. That's the third rank, right? And I, I suppose he's got security clearance. It's not some rando who you're like, mm, better not talk about this in front of so-and-so. Yes, but I'm talking more about the difference between an enlisted man and an officer. So an enlisted man and an officer can equally have security clearance depending on where they work, and that's totally normal. I'm just saying an aide who is a captain is more versatile and can fill different roles, can actually 
temporarily fill in your shoes and take command if needed. Whereas a sergeant wouldn't be able to do that. They don't have the rank or the authority to do that. So the answer to your question is yes, for higher ranking generals. I don't think it's abnormal to have higher ranking and older people. However, you have to remember that this is all under the blanket of the military in film is often everyone is five to 10 years older than they would be in real life. And that's just God. That's exactly what I thought. Morgan Paul's a good exception. I I didn't check his date of birth, but he's probably in his early 20s and he's a captain. That's not an unusual age for that rank. That was one of the things I thought throughout the whole movie. I was like, why are all these old men here? Right. Well, it's like, look at, uh, I'm sure we'll cover this film eventually, but look at Brad Pitt in Fury. In real life, he's Mm -hmm. like in his early 50s. Now, granted, Brad Pitt is famously handsome and young looking for his age, but he's way too fucking old to be a tank commander, right? He would have been like, like at right. most in his early 30s, and that would be old already, so. Let's move on to some actual scenes from the film. I want you to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. Most famously with what ended up being the opening scene, but, you know, went back and forth because... They lied to him. Right, exactly. So when was this scene supposed to take place? This scene was supposed to be after the intermission, which is strangely not at the halfway point of the film. It's like an hour and 45 minutes into the film. But this was supposed to be the introduction to the second part of the film, not at the beginning. And George C. Scott was... He wanted it at the end. Right. And also, this is subtle, but it if you notice, he's a four-star general in that speech, and he's a yes. two and then three-star in the rest of the film. So it's obviously after the events, most of the events in the film. And it's it's a relatively accurate speech true to life. The speech, quote unquote, as it's now known, is paraphrased and a little bit censored version of a series of speeches that Patton gave to the U.S. Third Army prior to the invasion of France in 1944, so several years after the beginning of the film. And George C. Scott only agreed to it if it was going to be put at the end because he didn't want it to overshadow the rest of his performance, which is a really prescient thing to think. And I'll save some of this for my breakdown, but generally speaking... I think that speech is the best part of this film. The gasp. So it is a little bit of a letdown because I'm like, oh, cool. This is going to be great. And and I don't have a problem with Scott's performance. I think he's great in the film. But overall, it kind of like opens up with this just impressive display. They, first of all, so that flag, which I don't, I didn't see anything showing it as like the record of the size of a flag that's ever been put on screen, American flag, but it's got to be close. It's like gigantic. So it was painted on a black wall in a studio in Spain behind him. The up north Gander Mountain in Minnesota begs to disagree with you about how big a flag has ever been. Fair enough. But on screen. <laughs> on screen. Film. On screen. Okay, that's. And especially, bad. and especially for the scale of the shot, I've never seen an American flag covering literally the entire goddamn screen. So it's like pretty impressive. 
And then, of course, the speech was delivered impressively, which was done all in one afternoon. I don't know which take is in the film, but it took eight takes. And from what I was reading, George C. Scott did not flub a single bit of that speech at any point. And he insisted on not switching camera shots. He wanted to deliver the entire monologue all at once. Apparently, the different takes were for technical issues like lighting and stuff like that. If it was just about his performance, they might have taken his first take. Wow. In terms of a professional actor, like that's how good George C. Scott was, because that's a pretty long speech to be giving. And then, yeah, of course, they toned it down for the film. For example, when he says fornicating in real life in that speech, he said the actual F word. That speech is interesting from all kinds of perspectives. What did you guys think of that opening scene? Liam, let's hear it. It's no, I mean, that is, that is like the definition of iconic. It's, man, it is funny to listen to him talk about like how America (laughs) will never lose a war. And this is during the Vietnam war that this was filmed. It's during the Vietnam war. So at the time that it happened, it still hadn't, it was still true, but Mm, that that line didn't age well. And we retreated out of Afghanistan, what, three months ago? At the time of this recording? Yeah, but didn't you hear that we it was mission accomplished back in like 2003, though, yeah? Right, right, right. Oh, good. Uh, so, <laughs> I actually watched this with my kids. Wow. Are you serious? Isabel was kind of in and out. Kieran likes to listen to the as many episodes as I'll let him, and he has to have watched the movie first. And I was like... This is a movie he could watch. Like, he's 11. He's fine. You know, I think I was probably maybe around his age the first time I saw it. And so we were watching it. And Isabel goes, so wait, does that mean I'm not a real American? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. Because it was just like from my nine-year-old daughter after he's just like, real Americans love to fight. They love the sting of battle. And she's like. Dad, does that mean I'm not a real American? I'm like, no, that's just his opinion, honey. Don't, don't you worry. You're <laughs> just fine. Just a dead dude's opinion. He, he cray cray. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Famously an asshole. Don't worry about it. He's a, <laughs> you're, you're okay. But no, the, the speech is excellent. His performance is excellent. I have to wonder, and I'm, I'm sure that somebody was on this, but are all of those medals accurate? Yes. Yes. So I assume since you're going to zoom in on the medals, that they're all accurate and their placement is accurate. However, I am a lump of cookie dough and you could have just put like smiley faces on it and I would probably not have noticed the difference. So I had to wonder, I was like, are they just catering to my stupidity or do they they know that there are going to be pedants out there that are just like really honed in on that? Because there were a lot of them. He was also a World War II general. And an officer in World War One. Exactly. Like, you're going to get all the awards if you survive. He was in the cavalry from the time that the cavalry was horses through the time that the cavalry was tanks. Correct. And so I, I do know the story behind this. Patton, surprisingly, kind of, despite how... I don't know if you could describe him as vain, really, He's he's confident and arrogant and definitely has a set of values that he is unbending about. But I don't know how physically vain you could call him. So not with that hairline. Right. Oh, man. We got to talk about that in a second. 
So you could assume that this is like, oh, look at the general putting on every medal he owns. I would say it's not vain, it's arrogant. So the story behind the depiction of his medals is actually that Patton almost never wore all of his awards and decorations on his uniform because he had like seven rows of ribbons. He'd served for so long, too. I mean, not that he didn't, you know, he had plenty of awards for heroism. Right. That's like a lot of shit to put on. Exactly. It's heavy. He's very particular about all the right things. And we don't see him wear all of that stuff except for during those scenes. So what happened is the producers wanted to show Patton at least once with all his decorations. And the only way they could get it is from this photo that his wife had asked him to take because she asked him, she said, I want to see you in uniform with all your medals and stuff. And so he took a picture for his wife. And that is what they based all of his medals off of. So, yes, the depiction is accurate, but he probably never wore all those medals in those speeches or at any point in his actual active military career because he just wasn't all about that. And again, once you get to like seven rows of ribbons, it's it's kind of oppressive and it, you're turning into like the Marshal Zhukov kind of thing where you're mm-hmm. like, right, right. <laughs> They they start to lose value a little bit, at least to people who don't know them personally, because you're like, what is this bullshit? He looks like a Christmas tree, right? Like, how many of these can be real? Obviously, anyone who knows the medals like and knows the history knows that they were all real. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they got metal spotters out there that are just like, oh, I saw that one. Right. So they're they're probably on point. Another thing to know about his uniform is that he has a reputation for being flamboyant and kind of, you know, wearing this stuff that kind of seems not standard issue. Aside from a couple of things, it's really just the way he's wearing things. So, you know, the pants are cavalry pants. The belt is a regular officer's belt. The helmet is a standard issue helmet, but he had it polished to a shine. So that kind of (laughs) sticks out because normally helmets aren't polished that way. And the swagger stick. Well, again, he's a cavalry officer. So that you got to whip that tank on the ass to get it to go. So the ivory handle revolvers not only were the only thing that wasn't army standard issue, very obviously, but I believe the two you see in the speech were Patton's actual revolvers, which were then donated to a museum, but they got somehow got to use those in the production, which is pretty cool. Hey, everyone. This is Dan. As you all know, we don't have any ads on Danger Close, but what we do want to start doing is cross promoting with other great film, war and history podcasts so that we can recommend new shows you might find interesting here. And in return, those shows will promote Danger Close to their audiences. After all, us independent podcasters have to help each other out. One thing I can promise you, we will only promote good shows that we actually listen to and we genuinely think you will like. Our first promo for you is for Paul Scheel's excellent World War II unpublished history podcast called Fighting Through. The podcast started from his father Bill Scheel's memoir, Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. After editing his dad's book, Paul got in contact with so many veterans of World War II that he decided to start a podcast where he would publish some of those interviews and tell their stories. You will find many interviews directly with veterans and their families, from German boy soldiers in the Hitler Youth to D-Day veterans who landed on those infamous beaches in 1944. This is a great project that gives voice to so many veterans. You can find it on all the major platforms and can get more information on the website at www.fightingthroughpodcast.co. There were columns of soldiers trying to get onto the small boats. That's a more frightening experience ever. 25 yards, ramp going down, 
now. We did anything to get a couple of days sick. We used to put the finger on the line and let one of the lads hit it with a hammer. We hurled ourselves upon one another with a theory that afterwards we could not understand. Yeah, we crash-landed in the field. Imagine the shock when the pick clangs against steel. You wonder if you've started the clock ticking. <laughs> Fighting Through Podcast. Great unpublished history. So... I don't want to get bogged down too much into the military history part of this, because again, this is a little bit more about him as a general, specifically his interaction with other people. This does depict the U.S. defeat at the Kasserine Pass. That's the next scene where you see where the apparently they shot two real griffin vultures. I, I don't know why they had to do that, but they really killed those two vultures on screen. Had to or got to? They chose to, yeah. <laughs> I would say it's the We see that. And we see part of the Battle of the Bulge. But again, I'm not going to break down all those battles in detail. Spoiler alert, specifically because I don't think the tactics of those battles are depicted very well. But before I go off about it, what did you guys think of the quote-unquote combat scene? So we have a couple of tank battles. We have a couple of aftermath scenes where he's sort of walking onto the battlefield after the battle has ended and there's dead bodies here and there. And then there's the bombing scene where serendipitously when he's telling the British that they're sucking at air cover and they're like, oh, we got it covered. And then the Germans come and attack them like right after that. So it's like proving his point. And then he goes out and shoots at them. So I'm torn on the battle scenes because I think they looked pretty good as far as like the splody splodies looked pretty good. And the dying looked pretty, like the dead bodies looked pretty dead. So like those kind of technical aspects, I think were, were reasonably solid. I, I don't think they did a, a bad job with that. You know, and Dan, I think you might've made a, a bit of reference to this a, a minute ago, but I think the, the tactics really get lost in the film. And you don't always need to see all the nitty gritty of it because that would make for something pretty boring. But especially in that first one, when he's been up all night reading Rommel's book and then like uses his tactics against him. Rommel, you magnificent bastard, I read your book! <laughs> and especially since we see it more from Patton's further removed point of view. I feel like I would have liked to have had a little bit better sense what those tactics were. I think we get the most of that in that scene, but I could have really dialed that up a little bit more because there were points where my son was like, so wait, who's winning now? And I'm like, I don't know. America. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the end. And then after that, they really kind of just fucking stopped giving a shit about any of that. Katie. I think after the intermission, Things become a lot more muddied. Before the intermission, we get a little bit more detail about this is what we're fighting. This is where he's at. And it works because I think it's not the first half. It's the first chunk of the movie. It is a lot more detailed about where Patton is, what time frame we're working in. But then once we hit the second chunk, it's pretty clear that the war is over. We're just need to mop things up appropriately. And so it stops caring about which battle we're in and where we're at and all of that stuff. I mean, other than the push, you know, of course we get that. But even during the scenes that are talking about the push, 
We don't get too many specific references of where encounters happened. But generally, I really liked how they portrayed the combat in this because it's not over-the-top bloody. It's not a super dramatic. It feels very matter-of-fact. There's that one dude got run over. Yes. There's only a couple of scenes where we get to see almost clinical level of gore and destruction. And those moments work really well because they are so limited and the rest of it is kind of implied that this is what's happening. But because the movie is so focused on Patton, we don't necessarily need. It's not like, um, you know, they shall not grow old, where the whole point is to see what these individual men went through. It's more to give us an idea of this is what the army was experiencing at the time. And I think there's a couple of moments in this in the film, like when the two men are walking and the second guy says, There he goes, old blood and guts. Yeah, our blood, his guts. Which that is arguably a true story. Someone, I forget who was writing what book, but he overheard I mean, that, saying that. That was his, one of his nicknames. <laughs> but I think that kind of encapsulates the battlefield side of these things and allows us to continue with the film and like see representations of violence and gore and fighting without having, you know, saving private Ryan level depth to it, because that's just not the point of the film. So I like how they did it, but it, it, my, my enjoyment of it is very much because this is a movie that was made in 1970 about this particular topic in this particular way. So it wouldn't work in every film, but in this film, it's already almost three hours long. I could have used like a superimposed Ken Burns map with arrows on it from time to time. They have that shit, though. They have that shit with the generals. Yeah, they do show you some. No, I mean, mostly like his big 300 mile like that trek. Oh, I see. Like Gone with the Wind, where it has like, this is the thing passing through the map type thing. You know, because that whole thing at the end, like his big last push where he drove his men to like inhuman. Right. Yeah. Where 48 hours we're getting from, you know, we're, we're going to go miles. all the way to Phoenix. And then just it's <laughs> Phoenix. It, like just fuck? fucking like wherever it is they're supposed to go. But then it's just kind of like a montage of people marching. And then it's like, and we we did it, guys. I, I would have liked to have a little bit more of an under. I feel like I, that's the part I didn't see them do it. You know what I, I mean? I would say that's more a product of its time. Fair. Because this has been 1970. Most people who are going to see this movie have a lot more familiarity with the exact specifics of World War II than we do in, you know, 2021. So I, I can see how they felt. It wasn't necessary. I think the audience may have felt they were being talked down to mm-hmm. and needing that level of explanation. So, yeah, in terms of the battles, I'm going to disagree, especially with Katie, but with both you guys in general, in that I think you're letting the film off the hook way too much. <laughs> I'll talk a little bit about the technical stuff now. I'll save my philosophical disagreements for my breakdown. And this comes from Micah, who, again, is a captain in the army 
and is not a tanker, but he definitely has studied a lot of army history. So he had a lot to say about this. He didn't even go into depth on the inaccuracy of the tanks because he's like, I'm sure a million people have pointed this out. I'm also not going to do that. But I will say that as someone who doesn't get super pedantic about, oh, this car model came out two years after the, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, you've seen enough World War II footage that the fact that they couldn't put together three or four fucking Sherman tanks and using camera tricks, multiply them to like 25. And the fact that I'm not a tank expert. And again, I don't give that much of a shit about that kind of level of detail. But I think it's like constantly obvious that these are not World War II tanks. And, you know, they're from the 50s and early 60s, but like they're distinctly different looking, at least for me. I was like, what the fuck? These tanks like don't look right at all. I would not have noticed that. No. Normally I would be in the same boat as you guys. Again, I'm not really a vehicle, airplane, tank kind of expert kind of person. But what added to the fact is that the tactics are basically non-existent in these tank battles and are so unrealistic and Hollywoody that I really felt like of all the things I did not like about this film and that I have a problem with, which I'll talk about at the end, you would expect the fucking tank battles and the combat at least to be done right. So that you can be like, well, the story falls kind of flat or the editing kind of sucks or whatever, but there's some like really cool battles. Now, granted, I'll give them some credit. The pyro is really good. The explosions mm-hmm. are believable. I don't ever believe that the actors and stuntmen aren't in danger during some of these explosions because a lot of them were real close and there are real vehicles blowing up and flying around. So kudos to that part. That part of it was done well. However, the actual tactics are just really non-existent. And I'll let Micah have the last word here since he knows a lot more about the technical stuff. The Battle of El Guitar, which is the one where you sort of see that it's during the day, you see the German tanks and infantry advancing from the distance, and Patton and his forces are kind of entrenched and waiting for them. I'll start with a positive note. Micah says, this is a rare film that depicts airburst artillery shells. And you see that when the tanks are advancing, these rounds or these, these shells keep exploding above them. And those are shells designed to detonate in the air above the enemy and spew shrapnel around the area to kill infantry. A nice authentic touch that like Micah couldn't even come up with another example of it being depicted in a film ever. So pretty rare that you would see that level of accuracy in the pyro for the film. Totally like they could have gotten away with not doing that right, but somehow they did. The battle itself, despite the good depiction of the artillery, the film does a pretty poor job portraying the battle. The battle lasted about two weeks, not the brief encounter in the film. Present were many British troops in addition to Americans. Fighting was conducted at much longer distances than depicted here in the film. Small arms engagements up to 800 meters and tanks engaging past a kilometer. Of course, fighting often got close within 50 meters up to point blank, but most of the fighting was not that close. The film's battle is almost like the battles kids have with toy soldiers. Big blob of infantry and tanks walks right up to another big blob of infantry and tanks and then they shoot at each other. (laughs) That's definitely what I got out of it. Not knowing, you know, the technical details of tank tactics and not really having read about that. That's definitely how it felt to me. So yeah, I, I really did not appreciate the lack of tactics depicted, despite the fact that again, later on when Patton's tanks run out of gas, because in 
a slight oversimplification in the film, like Montgomery's getting all the gas because he has to, you know, he he's more important and is, you know, and so they had to stop where they were. And once the Germans showed up, they had to fight because they couldn't maneuver. I liked that night battle. I thought that the confusion and the shitty situation that those tankers were in were was better depicted than the Battle of El Guitar. But yeah, I was pretty disappointed that I was like, of all the things this film could have kind of screwed up and not done very well, especially considering how many Academy Awards it has, it was the tank battle. So I was like, come on, give me like an actual good, well-depicted tank battle. And this film really did not deliver on that for me. Yeah, that's where I'm at on the battles. And I'm usually not that guy. I'm not the action guy. I'm not the combat guy. Like, as long as it's realistic, it doesn't pull me out of it. It's fine, usually. But this was kind of fell short. I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the quirkier side of Patton that's portrayed in this. Such as the fact that he believed in reincarnation enough to to tell all of his fellow officers about it. And was also a devout Christian. I was interested to see a Bible by your bed. Do you actually find time to read it? I sure do. Every goddamn day. (laughs) That's a good line. So much of this character and this actual real human being is so almost contradictory. In particular, his personal beliefs. He portrays it as he was at carthage he was at all these battles he knew he was with napoleon he was with napoleon he knew julius caesar all of this stuff and knowing that he grew up reading the bhagavad gita and all that's like okay that makes a little bit more sense yeah he based on the poem that he wrote through a glass darkly based on a verse in corinthians it's it's the same line that a scanner darkly comes from one of my favorite Mm -hmm. science fiction films and a philip dick book Patton talks about vague memories of six separate past lives from cavemen to ancient Roman to Napoleonic Frenchmen and being a soldier in each and every life. So, yeah, he definitely believed that he was a, you know, eighth or ninth reincarnation of someone uh, that had fought in many, many wars and had always been a soldier. And that was his calling, etc. And that I think that is reiterated throughout the film in that from... His insistence that he get there before Montgomery, his dedication to, you know, he's been sidelined and he's like, no, God shall not allow this. I will be involved. And then he is involved. You know, he makes it to Berlin and his giant push through Europe and all of that. Like he is skilled enough with combat and strategy that he is very, very valuable you know, to Eisenhower, because it really seems like throughout the film, and from what I've read in real life, (laughs) that Eisenhower is really Patton's saving grace in all this, and their relationship allows him to succeed, even when all common sense, including from Omar Bradley's perspective, says no. Yeah, so it's obvious from reading the research that Eisenhower and Patton kind of came up together in the army to a certain extent. And so they had a friendship and generally liked each other, although I'm sure being in charge of Patton was a pain in the ass, obviously, and not like not like every commander's dream. As Bradley says. Right. And I think this is somewhat depicted in the field hospital visit where 
and I know Katie's going to speak a little bit to the accuracy of this, but this is a real event that did happen. Patton, in fact, it's downplayed in the film because in real life, Patton slapped two different soldiers who were there with what they would call shell shock at the time, what we now call PTSD. It was battle fatigue, I think, at this point. Sure. Yeah. Battle fatigue. Right. Shell shock was maybe earlier, like World War One term. World War One. Then this, then it got, you know, renamed battle fatigue. Right. So it's same thing. We obviously now call it post-traumatic stress disorder, but essentially, you know, I'm sure most listeners are familiar with this because you don't have to be in the military to get PTSD. Lots of different traumas can trigger that. And of course, the idea being here that there's physically nothing wrong with the person, but they are mentally scarred from events that have happened to them and it is causing them to become incapable of performing their duties, et cetera. And it doesn't even have to be like an event or distinct things. I know somebody who was diagnosed with PTSD just from life, hmm. just like yeah. their life has like left them with PTSD. Sure. Chronic stresses or, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, it can come from like financial insecurity over time. Obviously in the military and in combat, it often is coming from much sharper events and, yes. you know, seeing people die or being shelled for a week right. straight, things like that, which we don't, I don't, I didn't look into the backstory of those soldiers in particular because it doesn't really matter. What matters is Patton's reaction, which is basically to slap them around, call them cowards, and then try and like order them to the front. But Katie, I know you had some things to say about this. So the soldier that's portrayed in particular and the apology that Patton gives isn't necessarily accurate. And it's one of the rare instances where the film portrays Patton in a less generous light than should be in that that soldier it was discovered that they were suffering from malaria oh interesting it wasn't just battle fatigue and that Patton felt genuine remorse for the fact that he had said something like this and slapped a soldier and done all of this to someone who did have in Patton's mind anyway a legitimate reason and I'm making the finger quotes about legitimate reason because PTSD is absolutely a fucking legitimate reason. Right. Right. But in this old general's mind, like, Oh, you have malaria. That might make sense why you're exhausted all the time. So I can't speak to the second person, but that was the case with the guy that we see portrayed is that, and Patton was said to feel genuine remorse. Whereas in the film, doesn't feel too genuine feels like he's got to do it because otherwise he's not going to get that next command that he wants but that kind of makes sense that they condensed it like that because Mm -hmm. the malaria story never comes up in the film so arguably the plot is that they do have ptsd Patton is reacting to them and thinking they're cowards and then gives kind of a half-assed not very genuine apology because he was ordered to by eisenhower Right, and that feels more genuine to the tone that the film is setting for Patton. Right, because what you're describing as what happened in real life still does not result in Patton having remorse over treating a soldier with PTSD as a coward. His remorse was, oh, I'm sorry, he did have malaria. That was my bad. That's still not, not him reneging on his philosophical idea behind someone is sitting out the fight because they have PTSD. Right. So in the end, I think that works. Yes. Yes, I agree. I think it was a good choice, but that knowledge highlights even the starker contrast of that Patton had no patience for anyone 
when it wasn't quote unquote legitimate in his mind. It's fucking bonkers that a guy that believes in reincarnation can't figure out PTSD. (laughs) Oh, I can't see your sickness. So it's not real. Yeah. And obviously hindsight's 2020 and who knows how Patton would react were he a general in that position now, but PTSD is obviously a well-studied and understood thing that it was not at the time. Right. And it's probably fair to say that most combat veterans who actually saw real combat and either had to kill people or watch people die next to them, it's more likely than not that those people will exhibit some sort of PTSD at some point in their lives. Now, it may not put them out of the fight in the war that they're in, but it may lead to alcoholism later in their life. Of course, we know that the suicide rate amongst veterans is really high, and a lot of that has to do with PTSD. Another thing that I wouldn't say is anecdotal, I just not obviously being a doctor or a scientist, I can't speak from my own authority about it, but I will say that I listened to a podcast series recently that I'll suggest to our listeners called The Line. I forget who produces it, but it's a professional production. And it's an investigative series into the incident that happened with the Navy SEAL Chief Gallagher, who was accused of murdering a POW in, I think, Iraq. I can't remember if it's Iraq or Afghanistan. This is recent. Like This trial happened during the Trump administration. It was in the last couple of years. And in the end, I think he ended up getting acquitted. Really controversial. The line really does a good job of investigating and interviewing other members of the team to like find out what happened. The reason I bring it up is there's an interesting anecdote where one of the members of, I think of this SEAL team ended up dying by suicide later on. And they ended up examining his brain. And one of the things that they brought up is that they think that chronic exposure to explosions up close, which Navy SEALs specifically doing a lot of breaching exercises, you know, where you put a charge on a door, you blow the door, and then you go in kind of like SWAT team style, but like in war, you're pretty close to a lot of that explosion, a lot of those explosions. So there's a lot of concussive forces that you're dealing with. Exactly. So one of the things I read was that it was argued that it was possible that some of Patton's personality and erratic behavior may have actually come from being in combat so much and being exposed to a lot of explosions because there is some medical evidence coming out that consecutive exposure to concussions like that, especially from explosions, can start to actually change, like, I think the chemical balances inside your brain. And well, essentially- that was uh, what happened to Aaron Hernandez, right? Yes. The the football player who mm-hmm. who killed his wife, they looked at his brain after he died and mm. she was like, Oh my God, this brain is so incredibly damaged. Right. So I bring that up because there are obviously still things that we don't exactly understand about the chemistry of the brain, but needless to say, so many things over at least a hundred plus years of, again, this thing going from shell shock to battle fatigue to PTSD, like it has been studied. And while we don't know all the answers, we know that there's a correlation and we know that it's really damaging to people. So I'm, I'm glad that patent got chastised for this because ptsd is definitely something that as a society we want to treat seriously whether we're talking about combat veterans or anybody else 
uh, because of the suicide rates related to it and all the other problems. Well, that it causes. And also, I think there's a certain amount of there's there's a certain attitude when you when you carry a dim view of most people's ethics, which is evident a, a couple of times in the movie when he with the opening scene where he's like this individualism is a lot of crap you know and it like definitely not in with the possible shiftings of societal norms and and things like that when you start divvying people up into people that act right and people that act wrong even though that acting wrong isn't like murder or rape or robbery or things like that but i think it's the idea that if this person was a coward and said that he had battle fatigue, he doesn't know how to diagnose it. That's why he doesn't believe in battle fatigue. And so somebody could say, I have battle fatigue and just get out of their duty. Whereas somebody who's right. lost a limb, you can see it. Right. And I can see that feels offensive. There's a certain level of offensiveness mm -hmm. in Patton's reactions. Yeah, so it's like, it, and it's something that you see not just in Patton, but like in life. It's like, well, if you can just say that this is the case, then anybody can do that. And that's not right. In the military, it's called malingering. MASH, the film, not the show, was also up for a 1970, it was considered at least for a 1970 Oscar. And that is also a really great example of a character who's like, I'm going to do anything to get the fuck out of this army who is not actually, in the context of the film, is not actually suffering PTSD or trauma and is just trying to get out through being judged as, quote-unquote, insane. That is what makes this more complex, is that while I share Liam's sentiments about being anti-individualism in like regular life and in a more normal setting where I'm like, well, you know, when you're at work, there's a team setting, but there's also a place for individualism in the military. It's a much different ball game oh, because yeah, no. the level, right. the level of team effort and unselfishness and sort of cohesion, thinking think. about the bigger picture and the cause and doing what you're told, like, those are all things that do not have the same controversy that they might have in a regular job or in regular life. Like the military is a very specific type of machine that when it comes down to the nuts and bolts is the organized murder of a lot of people. Like it or not, it's a necessary evil and that is essentially the military's job. They do other things, of course, and they nation build and they also help children and build hospitals. Like there's lots of things that, you know, the army and the military in general do. But my point is, in most jobs, you are not asked to go into a place and shoot and kill other people as if it's just like a normal thing. So it definitely requires a different mindset and a different leadership structure. And there are malingerers in every military and in every war. So the fact that Patton would be suspicious of someone sitting out the fight like that, that part is not necessarily a bad thing. The problem is that he's not leaving it up to the professionals in that field to determine whether there's malingering going on or whether these are this is real battle fatigue or whatever. That's the problem is that he's inserting himself as I think is very well acted out and displayed by the doctor's character mm -hmm. where 
He's like, why aren't you wearing a helmet? Oh, my God. And the doctor's being pretty respectful, but he's just like, get the fuck out of here with your Calvary pants. Like, this is a goddamn hospital. Right. And and my understanding is that generally in, at least at this time, in military hospitals, like, you may be the general, but also this is the fucking doctor. Yes. In charge. Oh, this this doctor may be a captain, but they're also the head doctor of this unit. And it, it acquires just a little more status than the average captain or whatever. Well, it's less about status or like the average role, and it's more about a rank and a position within the context of the organization that you're actually a part of within the military. You're responsible for these men on this level. Yeah, like you have a level of authority that's contextualized within that hospital or a control tower, for example, which was what I'm familiar with. Where that goes beyond your rank. The colonel could walk in and tell you whatever he wants. He can tell you things like, why aren't your boots shined or where's your hair? You know, things like that. And sure, you're going to have to defer to that because you're like, ah, fuck, the colonel's pissed and I got to do this. But he can't come in and tell you like operationally that you're if they're outside of your field and they don't know your technical expertise, they don't have the authority to just walk in there and tell you how to do your job. Not in that way. I mean, if there was a problem, right, that general would have to go to your commanding officer that have to go down the chain and for sure, like things can be corrected. But yeah, like in general, a doctor is going to respectfully probably tell a general like that to get the fuck out of his hospital because it's like, that's not your job. (laughs) Like, sir. I'm just trying to be able to listen to my patient's heartbeat without having to take an extra couple seconds to deal with my helmet. We've seen this before in other films. While the depiction of poor discipline that Patton walks into when he first gets to, uh, I think it's the first scenes in Morocco, where he's like, oh, I'm about to shape this fucking place up and people are about to, you know... People are going to be wearing their leggings. People are going to be wearing their helmets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we've talked about that before, that there's an aspect to personal hygiene and uniform wearing in the military. Like in Beau Travai, when they're ironing their seams. Right. Yeah. Or it's like in the Kate Mutiny. And there were certain points in this film where it was flashing back to that of like, does this really matter? Or are you just being a hard ass to be a hard ass? Well, like- it also has one of my favorite lines. What were you doing down there, soldier? Trying to get some sleep, sir. Mm. Get back down there, son. You're the only son of a bitch in this headquarters knows what he's trying to do. Yes, sir. Yes! I love that line. He's like, what are you doing down there? Trying to get some sleep? <laughs> the point is that discipline, it can go up or down the chain in the sense that the lack of discipline and you know hygiene and wearing your uniforms properly could be a reflection of poor command. Right. And it's also right. a reflection, usually, Which makes sense. it's a reflection of poor morale. Like, it's a symptom of a bigger problem. And that's what Patton's correcting. And that's what most good officers and good leadership in the military would do. It's not necessarily about being anal and being a hard ass, although that's how it comes off. It's really about if soldiers are allowed to just walk around here with the shirts untucked and like doing whatever the fuck they want what's going on higher up and how are these soldiers going to react when they're actually in combat and there's important shit going down that's why very often you will see infantrymen shaving in the field with some cold ass fucking water and a bar of soap and you're like this seems unnecessary it's also cold why the fuck are these guys shaving but it's like well 
one, if you have to put on a gas mask, it works a lot better if you, you're clean shaven. But two, again, it's a matter of maintaining that daily discipline where it's like, no, there's a way we do things and you have to maintain some kind of order because if you start letting those things slide, those small snowballs roll downhill and turn into a huge problem later. Definitely get that. It's not Patton's ideals necessarily that are a problem. It's more like the way he carries out his actions and makes sort of like the U.S. look bad and army leadership look bad. And as they are, obviously was perturbed by that. So I have a, a question, and I don't know if any of our research has any of this in it. How accurate is the depiction of the Germans' impression of Patton? In this film, because we get a lot of the German perspective where they're talking about like, oh, well, this is this is Patton. And he's, you know, like wherever Patton goes, we got to go. And anything else is like a distraction. It's just a big faint. So here's my understanding of it. Maybe Dan will have a, a different perspective. Psyops in World War Two was a huge part of war. And when we come to like the Enigma machine and cryptography and all of that, and that Eisenhower used Patton as like a pawn to manipulate the Germans, because as it's portrayed in the film, the Germans are like, well, how could you waste a good commander on this? And Eisenhower was like, yeah, but I don't like what he's doing. So we'll use him to mess with you. And that's the impression that I got is that, it's not just a punishment that Patton is sent to London. No, I got that as well. It, it's a, well, you're a useful tool, and that will be even more of a punishment for you. Yes, you're not useful the way you want to be, but this is how I can use you right now. Exactly. But I was curious if the borderline reverence for Patton that they were displaying in the film was the actual case. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't have a specific answer for you in the research, Liam, but what I would say is that, you know, in general, I think that specific people, especially when they're infamous or famous and have big personalities and have certain accomplishments under their belts, they end up becoming token representations of the forces that they're leading, right? Both mm -hmm. literally, but also figuratively. So it's like, you know, they talk about it when they're talking about Rommel, like Patton's obsessed with like beating Rommel. Right. And then he finds out that he's not even at the fight, the tank battle that they end up winning in the desert. So and mad. the comment was, well, it was Rommel's plan. If you beat Rommel's plan, you've beaten Rommel. Meaning how much of a difference would Rommel actually have made on the field? They were executing his plan and you beat it. That guy was such a brown noser. <laughs> Right. Like he was so close to being a sniveling little toady, yeah. but like he just had a little bit too much like gravitas for it. But it's a lot easier to take a figurehead and represent all these enemy forces that you're fighting or this particular core that you're fighting. And I think like Katie said, yeah, psyops and propaganda in general is going to take advantage of that and embellish the things that make the U.S. Army look good and try and downplay the things that make them look bad or that where Patton's making us look bad. And so the having the decoys and having a feint where like it looks like you're going to attack here or it looks like you're going to land in this part of Sicily when really you're not is just a part of war fighting. So mm -hmm. I don't know specifically how much German generals, how much time they spent thinking about Patton in particular. 
I can tell you certainly that Montgomery and Patton in real life definitely thought about each other a lot and were in competition. <laughs> Not fans. Not fans. Yeah, and there was... While Patton had less control over the plans for the invasion of Sicily than the film shows, the film shows him sort of having more clout and being able to make more decisions about where he was landing and what he was going to do. In real life, those decisions were not made by Patton, and he just did what he was told. But in terms of competing with Montgomery to get to Messina first and all that, and it's like, just give me the gas and I'll kill all the Germans on the way, blah, blah. Like, I think that's pretty accurate and makes sense. I mean, he's kind of an egomaniac i think it's hard to deny that kind of and i think oftentimes you you don't have to be that way but certainly a lot of people in those positions are but it helps right and i i think Patton's perspective of montgomery in this is not accurate he was not nearly as foppish I, I think in this film Patton kind of feels like montgomery is the british Patton. And that he's also looking for all of this glory and to succeed and all of that. And in reality, I don't think Montgomery was quite like that because he was considered, uh, from at least what I've read, to be a pretty level-headed man who was just trying to win the fucking war. A little bit more um, like Bradley, say, than Patton. So he wasn't a prima donna. No. Not not from what I saw, that he, he was not as foppish as he's portrayed in this. that is definitely true i think in terms of him being an egomaniac and and that aspect i think he's a little in between a Patton and a bradley but montgomery definitely had his own intense views and mm-hmm. yeah like it definitely was a big personality in that way just there were actually quite a few parallels between Patton and Montgomery, some for the positive some for the negative again ali did some research on montgomery for us and uniforms is one thing where Montgomery definitely liked to sort of dress up and as Eisenhower said, possessing a flair for showmanship. So there's definitely some of that. What a nice way to put it. He also had a, a similar history to Patton. So he went to, he was trained at Sandhurst, which is the British equivalent of West Point. So he was an aristocrat. Yeah, well, certainly he was. And he also went to, again, a prestigious military academy. He was also grievously wounded in the lung at the first battle of Ypres in uh, World War One, And he was so close to death that a grave was dug for him. So they both had a pretty close brush with death in a previous war. But more importantly, one thing that Micah points out. So Micah is constantly annoyed with this film by the fact that the British are portrayed as like overly foppish and prissy and like, you know, Patton seems like the real man and like, the british ideals and their their strategy is kind of like focused on the wrong things and (laughs) you know things are oversimplified and that's really not how it happened in real life because he's like what does this director have against the british why is he making them look like shit all the time in like unrealistic and unhistorically accurate ways he should have put them in red coats and have them walk around with a cup of tea I think that this this is more an example of the film taking it from Patton's perspective. Yes. And I think it's it's less about making the British look shitty. And I think it's the contrast of making Patton look really good and like this exceptional leader compared to them. And super manly. And show it because I as watching the film, I never thought that I was like, "Mm, Montgomery seems to be a little more with it than Patton and maybe a little more sensible. And I think. The film tries to show it from both angles of like, 
is how they actually were because Montgomery never comes off. I mean, there's the scene where uh, when they come into Messina and Patton's already there and they're doing the dueling military orchestras. Yeah, they start playing the band over top of the bagpipes. Right, right. Like, I, I never got the sense that Montgomery was nearly as precious about things as as Patton was. I don't know. I thought the film depicted him as being that, but in a British stiff upper lip kind of way. Well, he's also not as erratic and prone to irrational decision making, I would say. Yeah, th- that may be true, but I think that the inaccuracy in the film is a lot less about Montgomery specifically and a lot more about higher command, the strategy and who was given what resources when the film is way oversimplified there and it always seems to be like oh montgomery is like taking the lead but so here's a point that micah brings up from a bigger picture perspective that is interesting he says it is a fact that montgomery was a far more cautious general than Patton. he was famous for going kind of slow right and for that matter in general All British commanders were more cautious than American commanders, but there's a reason for this, and it's not that Americans are braver and more daring than the British. All armies across the world have different characters, and those characters derive from the nations they belong to. The British army during the Second World War was spread thin, often far from its homeland, indeed always separated from the islands of Great Britain. It was a smaller army than the Germans, Soviets, and Americans. Reinforcement and resupply took a long time and was contingent on avoiding Axis sea power. British commanders simply didn't have as many troops or supplies to be as aggressive as the Germans, Soviets, or Americans. If a British battalion was wiped out, they didn't always have another battalion to replace it. Not so with the Soviets and Americans. They could always plug another battalion in. If the British lost a tank, it took a lot longer for them to get a replacement than for the Americans or the Soviets. Therefore, the British, by necessity, have to be more cautious because the impact of losing a battle was far greater than it would be for the Americans or the Soviets. Montgomery, in particular, had been fighting the whole war in Africa, starting in the south and pushing north along the eastern coast. In general, he was almost always at a disadvantage to the Germans in terms of supplies and manpower. He had to be more cautious and deliberate about his actions. So when it came to Sicily, although his supply situation was far better and he had more reinforcements at his disposal, he was still thinking in terms of conservation. Finally, the British throughout the later stages of the war, once it became clear that the Allies were winning, began to be conservative for another reason, the post-war period. Britain wanted to be a power player after the end of the Second World War. To hold the position of a world power, they would need a military that was robust. If they lost the majority of their troops fighting World War II, what would they have been left with afterwards? And I think to conclude that point, I was also reading that a lot of historians' opinions seem to think that American victory in general on the Western Front and in World War II, I'm going to make a very broad point here, was more due to the overwhelming resources and funds that the Americans had and the fact that they entered the war later, as opposed to the specific leadership of Patton or Eisenhower or, you know, strategic know-how, especially against the Germans, who at this point were, you know, the Russians are advancing to the east, the Germans are getting split. So resources are starting to wear thin for the Germans which again, after the Battle of the Bulge, the Germans were basically on the retreat for the rest of the war until they lost the war. So 
there's something to be said for that, that these different armies are in different positions. And we see a lot of that represented in these generals and in the characters. Before we do the breakdown. Yes. Was somebody going to talk about Patton being an anti-Semite? Yeah. So Patton was pretty controversial for other reasons as well. And there are a lot of quotes here, but some of them, especially in between the end of the war and his death, you know, he wrote things like, we may have been fighting the wrong enemy all along. And later he wrote, I think we've been fighting the wrong people all this time. And yeah, he had, he did have some anti-Russian sentiment, but for one, the quote where he says, you know, essentially the British and Americans are going to end up ruling the world. And that was that. That was the media misquoting him because he actually had the Russians included in that statement. The controversy was actually more the fact that he said that they were going to be ruling the world. Like politicians in the U.S. were like, what? No, don't say that. Like, that's that doesn't look good. No one needs to know that that's what we're planning. <laughs> he God. said the soft part out loud again. Exactly. Exactly. But then it gets darker and less excusable and weirder where it becomes pretty clear based on a lot of comments. For example, when he was fired from command towards the end of the war, he blamed Jews and communists, which is a classic statement by anti-Semites. Sounds familiar to something Hitler would say, to be perfectly honest. There's also an incident where at one point there were Jewish prisoners of a concentration camp that was liberated, and Patton had SS POWs guarding the Jewish prisoners, which of course the Americans were like, what are you doing? This is like terrible optics. And he told Eisenhower he wanted to turn a nearby village into a concentration camp for Jewish survivors of the Holocaust. Now, I'm assuming that doesn't mean an extermination camp. It means a prison camp. But still, he had way less than favorable views towards Jews in general, which is disturbing. Is that part of the thing that they were talking about in the movie when the reporters were asking him about using German personnel? Yes, absolutely. Was that them talking about him having SS officers guard the Jewish prisoners? And he, he literally makes the statement that, you know, we were fighting the wrong people when he's on the call just after that scene. Right. (laughs) And then in something that I guess could be by itself interpreted as like, okay, this is kind of being taken out of context. But I think when you add it to these other incidents, you're starting to see a picture here of someone who had some very controversial views about race or certainly about Jewish people. In response to the criticism of having SS men guarding Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, he's quoted as saying, SS means no more in Germany than being a Democrat in America. And he said, that is not to be quoted, which of course he was quoted. I mean by that, that initially the SS people were special sons of bitches, but as the war progressed, they ran out of sons of bitches and then they put anybody in there. Some of the top SS men will be treated as criminals, but there's no reason for trying someone who was drafted into this outfit. Which again, by itself is not that controversial of a statement in the sense that you could look at an enemy army who is responsible for atrocities, etc. And we see this all the time in films that cover the German army, right? Hashtag not all SS. Yeah, they're not all SS. They're not all Nazis. (laughs) The German Navy was famous for this, right? They really weren't big fans of the Nazis in general. Obviously, they're all part of the same big war machine. But I'm saying, had that been the only quote, 
I think Patton could get away with that. Well, and again, they also did this a little bit in the film, not specifically going into the SS portion of it, but when he said that, you know, being a Nazi was similar to being a Democrat or a Republican back home. And I gotta say, he is like professional dressage riding that horse with those fancy ass stirrups and like his position and everything about that. I was like, mm, this does not send the message you think it does, my friends. And he's not necessarily wrong about that because it was a political party. Right. The, there were plenty of civilian members of the party, just like there are plenty of civilian members of the Democrats and the Republicans and the Greens and the Libertarians and whatnot. Right. But in the context of everything else that you we're telling us about exactly it's once you start adding all the things that you're like oh if pad had been born in germany he would have made a real good nazi i'm just gonna go ahead and say it and now it's time for the breakdown where we ask ourselves what was the objective of this film was it on target and did we like it liam you go first I think the objective of this film, you know, it's not too dissimilar from what the objective was with Che. Honestly, I think it was to put out for the public record and for public consumption, a picture of a larger than life historical figure that is supposedly warts and all, but definitely has a, a slant in favor of the person that it is depicting you know i don't think anybody had any really nefarious intentions i don't think they were trying to it wasn't a a crazy exaggeration from the historical figure himself but it was very galvanizing you could have dipped him in bronze at the end and it couldn't have done much more to cement the patininess of this movie from the opening speech on through the end he does kind of walk away fairly untarnished in the movie's view, I think. And was it on target? I think it did that. I think it accomplished it. I think when people think of Patton, they think of George C. Scott's Patton, which is why it's so surprising to hear his actual voice in videos now. Right. You know, we, we think of Patton and we think of him as constantly standing in front of an American flag and addressing the men. So I think it was successful in its in its objective in that as a piece of fairly light propaganda, maybe it worked. It did the trick. It stuck. Did I like it? This movie is a little bit of a puzzlement to me because I know, Katie, you were giving it a little bit of uh, slack earlier on in the episode from coming at it as a film that was made in 1970. Mm-hmm. And yes. That is interesting to me because this doesn't feel to me like a movie that was made in 1970. This movie could have been made anywhere between 1950 and 1970. So the fact that he was trying to get it made for 20 years, not at all surprising. The final product is not at all different from what he wanted it to be 20 years in advance. But the thing that's funny to me Dan, you were talking earlier about the number of Oscars that it won. George C. Scott winning Best Actor, 
probably right and proper. Like I'll, I'll go along with that. Best picture. Best director, best screenplay. Best. Yeah. All of the best editing, all of, all of these things, special effects. So I have to, I have to say I am a, not a professional, but somewhere more than casual observer of the Oscars. And if you look back through Oscar history, you can see some weird trends that emerge and some weird, like, Oh, well this year this happened. And then that year that happened. Like, and you notice like some jarring sociological shifts in the mood of the country. Like when you look at things like Ben, Hur won best picture in 1959 and the next year it went to the apartment which you can't get to movies that are further away from each other. Right. Or so I a thought. A comedy about suicide. Yeah. <laughs> about, uh, you know, infidelity and suicide. Or A Tale of the Christ starring Charlton Heston. You know, same thing. Yeah. Really. As a Jewish prince. So, like, you're just weird. Like, you get some weird backlashes here and there. And Patton, the biggest, splashiest, American flaggiest movie that you could possibly have conceived of at the time while we were in a war that was not going great because this was after the Tet Offensive. And certainly did not have the moral imperative. Yeah, did not have the full support of the public. But like this movie splashing that big in 1970 has to have come from the fact that Midnight Cowboy won the year before. I forgot about that, that that's the year Midnight Cowboy won. Midnight Cowboy, an X-rated film. But so great. Won in 1969. And that was followed by Patton. It's kind of like how Moonlight won and then Green Book. Right. Yeah. A lot like that. So, did I like it? I mean, this movie is not Green Book. No. Not green Nothing book. is green book, but green book. This is a movie that you can't have without this performance from George C. Scott. And it's worth watching for that performance. And there are some other elements that, that make it worth, worth the viewing, but it's not one that I'm going to return to anytime soon. I think I watched it 20, 30 years ago. I'm now at an age where I can, say that I watched something 30 years ago. That's weird. Ugh, it's awful, isn't it? Yeah, it, it sucks. Uh, so I watched this like maybe 25 years ago for the first time. I haven't watched it since. And it is fascinating how much of the movie I remember. And I don't know if that's because it's iconic. I don't remember if it's because the propaganda worked. I don't know if it's because it's just simple as fuck and easy to remember. It could be a combination of any of those three. Not my favorite. Don't hate it. But if you haven't seen it, you probably should. Katie? So, as I said earlier, Frank McCarthy, General Frank McCarthy, his impetus and objective in making this film was to try to portray a man who was very much an individual. Someone who is not often given this kind of position of power that Patton was given and to try to portray him in all of his complexity. And I think it does a pretty decent job of it, at least according to folks who knew the man. 
that George C. Scott just really knocks it out of the park and that Scott was really invested in providing not not just like a factually accurate performance, but an emotionally accurate performance. Because I think personally in film, emotional accuracy is far more important than factual accuracy because emotional is going to play to your audience and stick with them far more than like, Oh, he was at such and such place from this day to this day. And then did X, Y, Z like audiences don't remember that, but they very much remember, you know, George C. Scott slapping the shit out of a kid because he's got PTSD. Those are very memorable moments. And I think it succeeds fantastically at being a portrait of a very complicated man. But here's my thing. We are looking at this from 2021. And this is, this is what, 1940. Here's, here's my awesome math skills. Oh boy. I'm so good at math, guys. It's like 140 years ago, Katie. No, it's not that far. God. This is a film that is looking almost 80 years in the past. And we are looking at it from that perspective. When I think of something like Che, where it's not quite so far in the past, and how we have a lot more perspective about who Che was, and I'm not in any way comparing Che to Patton, but I'm saying that you lose a lot of historical context when you get this far away from the reality of what happened. And I think this film does a great job of giving us a perspective of what it felt like to watch Patton at that point, whether you're his aide de camp, whether you're Montgomery, whether, you know, whatever. And I think it works really well. As long as you understand that this isn't a fucking documentary. This is obviously a film that has has biases, has a skewed perspective, and is trying to say something. And I think knowing that enriches the film. And knowing how George C. Scott felt about the character enriches the film. I think the more you know about it, the better experience you're going to have with this movie. Did I like it? Mostly? Mostly. I think that's what I'm going for here is mostly. So this film is shot in 70 millimeter, which means a lot of the time you're going to get your best shots from having your camera be further away from your subject because you have all this space, all of this gorgeous space to fill on a cinema screen. But I did not watch this on that. I watched this on my widescreen TV, my widescreen 4K TV. So at times I'm looking at it, I'm like, I see so far away. I feel like I need binoculars to see this. And, you know, this is still pretty early in that kind of film shooting. That late 60s, early 70s is when there was a lot of experimentation with cameras and how to shoot one camera versus another and all of that. And I think there is a huge amount of also camera movement in this. In particular, I can remember shots uh, when they are in the process of doing the big push. And Patton is in some abandoned warehouse, maybe. And he's on the third floor and the camera 
takes a shot from being on the first floor and him walking across a hallway. And I was like, why are we doing this? Like, there's just too much camera experimentation. And I, I'm, I'm chalking that up to the director um, in that it begins to distance you from content of the film and becomes ornate almost. It feels, it feels Baroque where it's like, what? Do we need all these flourishes? I don't think we do. It's not broke. Don't fix it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Especially when we're dealing with a story of a man who is so, I mean, he's definitely very theatrical, but he is very down to earth brass tacks. Like we are dealing with A, B, C. This is how we're going to handle it. You know, so it feels not quite fitting with the subject matter. It's gorgeous. Don't get me wrong. I liked it, but it feels a little out of touch with what the film is trying to do. And I do have to say, this film was scored by... Yes, thank you. At this point, I think it's okay to say that Jerry Goldsmith is the patron saint of Danger Close, because he... <laughs> this is really just a Jerry Goldsmith podcast now, isn't it? Right! I think we're on five, if you include patron episodes. It's our fifth. Because... It, Jerry Goldsmith did the score for this, and I've looked at I looked at his IMDb when I realized he was our thing, and I was like, "Oh my god, we're going to cover so many Jerry Goldsmith movies!" <laughs> so, like, he is the patron saint of Danger Close. He is now passed on, sadly, but he's playing a harp just for us. But fuck yeah, Jerry Goldsmith, and he does a great job in this. It's it's not too overstated, but still interesting. So, did I like it? I mean. I don't know if that even matters, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) This movie isn't about whether or not you like it. It's about whether or not you get something from it. Because it's almost trying to be like a historical text of look at this man and what he went through and all that shit. And initially I was, you know, it's my busy time at work. So I'm watching it and I'm like, Fuck this movie. I fucking hate it. God damn you, Francis Ford Coppola, for making a three-hour movie. And then as I'm watching, I'm like, okay, it's not really that bad. Oh, okay, this is a really good shot. Oh, George C. Scott, what the hell? Why are you so great? So by the end, I, I'm like, all right, it's a good movie, but also very flawed in some ways because it is definitely selling a message about Patton the war and the politics of the era. So I'll probably watch it again in a few years when I go through a period where I'm like, I just want to know more about Patton and see George C. Scott do something. Let's just watch this. This will be great. So like doesn't even come into it with this. It's such a classic film and a classic performance that it kind of transcends whether or not you like it into is this worthy of watching or not? And for me, it absolutely is. Two responses specifically to what Katie said. One is we could cover the last days of Patton where George C. Scott <gasps> reprises his role in a 1986 made for TV movie that is, I think it's all about in between his accident and his death, which means he's in a hospital bed the whole time. Uh, it sounded interesting. Oh my God. Yes, <laughs> it's I still saw George that. C. Scott, so I'm like, I'll, mean, I'll watch it. <laughs> oh my God. We should, we should do a bonus episode about it, like a half an hour of like, what the fuck was this, you guys? Oh my God. I, although I don't even know if it's in print anymore. Right. And then uh, 
I love the idea of Danger Close's patron saint being Jerry Goldsmith, because once we finally have a merch store, I can picture like saint candles and like saint figurines of Jerry Goldsmith <laughs> conducting. We should, like- we should add a Patreon <laughs> level. That's the Jerry Goldsmith Patreon yes. level. Yes. Okay. I'm going to call yes. out our listener, Tyler Lee, who's always participating a lot in our Facebook group, which we really appreciate. You have to come up with some good Jerry Goldsmith patron saint of Danger Close memes. Just get get to work. <laughs> He's got a great visage for it, too. Jerry Goldsmith for the win. I'm going to close this goddamn episode out that is going to be edited to a normal length, but is one of our record recordings because it's a lot to talk about. I also, I have my shitting pants on. I'm going to shit on this way harder than Katie or Liam put together, I would say. So prepare yourself. All right. So what was the objective here? Well, it's complicated because I think that McCarthy and or the director stated, certainly McCarthy stated the intent as, and the objective is to show kind of the life and heroism of Patton as a war leader without lionizing him. But that objective was complicated by the fact that basically they got mostly Bradley's perspective on Patton, did not have access to his personal journals. So I think they had a tough task ahead of them considering the material that they had. Luckily, Patton did really say some of these laconic things and, you know, speeches and quotes. And a lot of that is pulled directly out of real life. So a lot of the public information makes for a for great scenes and great dialogue. Unfortunately, you still have to put a good movie together after that and write a proper story that actually flows and hit certain points, which I do not think this movie did. So was it on target? No. I think this film feels like outside of We Were Soldiers, this is the most US propaganda-ish feeling film to me. And it's interesting because it's... You're not wrong. It's a very different film from We Were Soldiers, but one of its main flaws is that it really does not humanize Patton very much. And while I get that you're not going to go into Bradley's family history, like a lot of these characters are just going to portray themselves as the military, you know, officer, enlisted man, tanker, whatever they were... I mean, I think there's a mention in passing of Patton's wife once, but like, it just doesn't tell you anything about Patton's life whatsoever. We Were Soldiers did that same thing, but there was no central character that was the main flaw. I mean, obviously, Mel Gibson plays the lead character in that, but they just really, really, really whitewashed everyone in that. Here, it's more like, well, a lot of characters just aren't a big enough part of the film to be talking about their personal lives. But Patton, which this is a biopic about, it's just too propagandistic to me. And there's way too much focus on his megalomania, which is fine. That was certainly a part of his character. But in terms of his flaws, like how, I mean, honestly, how hard is it to be anti-Nazi and pro-rescued concentration camp prisoners in World War II. Like, how hard is that? I get it that there were, like, Nazis that, you know, there was a Nazi party in the U.S. in the 30s, and, like, it's not unheard of for people being pro-fascist before World War II. But, like, as the leader of huge contingencies of U.S. troops, like, 
how undiplomatic and obtuse do you have to be to like not even keep your mouth shut about your anti-Semitism, which again, like aside from my personal feelings about <laughs> racism, which I obviously don't think is okay. You know, anti-Semitism being bad. But in a public figure like this, that really seems pretty stupid to me. And yeah, w- whatever. I mean, that's that's, I guess, a personal problem I have with Patton, which, again, I said it earlier in the episode. I think Patton would have made a good Nazi had he been born in Germany. And I'll stand by that statement. But moving on, did I like this film? Absolutely not. I would not recommend watching this film. Now, granted, I'll mention some of the good. There's definitely good here. It's not the whole thing isn't a flaming pile of garbage. But I think you can watch the six or seven minute speech in front of the flag at the beginning and get the gist and kind of the best part, in my opinion, of the film in just those six and seven minutes. And you can leave the other two hours and 45 minutes on the floor, as far as I'm concerned. Again, not because it's all terrible, but because in the end, I don't feel like I went on a journey or learned very much. So, okay, let me let me give a few pros here. I talked about the pyro and some of the effects. It's weird to have battle scenes that overall I don't think work for the most part, especially the main daytime tank battle in the desert. But it's not because the effects are unrealistic. The effects were good. It's the fact that, again, they don't bother at all to put any of the tank battle tactics or any realism into it. That's a bad enough flaw i think in a movie where ostensibly like if you expect one thing to be accurate again it would be the fucking tank battles which is not something i usually seek movies out for but i was honestly disappointed in this one where i was like wait really like that's the battle that's what you're gonna show me but on the philosophical note that i didn't get to earlier because i wanted to leave it to my break for my breakdown i have a serious problem with war films like this that are not fictional and are based on real people that don't take the responsibility of depicting the horrors of battle seriously. And I think Gettysburg was really guilty of this because it does a disservice to the people who were in these fights, who never made it home. Some of whom, including Patton are buried either in Europe or in North Africa. And the fact that you don't see any of the real violence or horror of war, the most violent moment is probably the vultures being shot and killed on camera, as well as the two mules. There were like several animals, not just injured, but killed in the making of this movie on purpose, which is kind of surprising. It's 1970, not like 1930. But the lack of blood and violence and the horrors of war, other than a few sort of stale, bloodied corpses, quote unquote, on the battlefield afterwards, I think does a a real disservice to the people who died in these battles. And you should have spent more time depicting that in a more serious way and showing the aftermath instead of just showing all this bravado and rah-rah America and like showing these tank battles almost like they're toy soldiers and you're playing a game of risk. Like, For all his talk of bravery, and the real Patton in real life did have plenty of moments of bravery. I'm certainly not going to shit on that, and I'm not a combat veteran, so, you know, I don't have any place to be saying anything like that. 
but he was grievously wounded in combat, continued to lead his troops in World War I from a crater. He did some serious shit and was very heroic as a military officer. But this film really, aside from him shooting his handgun in a few planes, doesn't really show him in any kind of danger at any point, which to be honest, probably does a disservice to Patton, because I'm sure there were times where he was leading tanks from the front and was in danger during these battles in Sicily and in Europe. So I don't think they do a great job with that as well. I can't fucking believe that this film won the Oscar for editing. This is like (laughs) some of the shittiest editing that we've seen so far. There's... Very little narrative structure tying these scenes together. They seem more like vignettes, the way you would do in a sketch comedy, except this isn't a comedy. So it's more of like a contextual setup for these famous, laconic, sometimes hilarious quotes that Patton is famous for so that you can have him deliver these lines, which George C. Scott delivers perfectly. And he embodies Patton really, really well, like small inaccuracies aside, but there's really nothing stringing the story together that is making you root for anyone and certainly not rooting for Patton. Like he's- Do you think that it won best editing because of the montage of shots of his medals in the first scene and they just remembered that part? That scene does a ton of heavy lifting for the film, so I would not be surprised if that's the case. And I do agree with Katie that the cinematography is pretty great overall. But this is another example, I think, of a film with good effects, good casting, mostly good acting. Yeah, there aren't really any, there's not any wooden acting in this. Like, all the acting is good. The photography is good. While it's not the most memorable Jerry Goldsmith score that I've heard, it's good. It does the job. It's perfectly fine. That score is pretty darn good. Yeah, I think it's great. It's fine. It's it's fine. It's fine. It's not one I would listen to the soundtrack like driving around, whereas there are other Jerry Goldsmith films where I would do that. But yeah, the editing does just nothing for the most part to elevate this film with like a couple of exceptions, probably like Liam said, the beginning scene where they're zooming in on the medals and the and the details of his uniform, which is a nice touch. So yeah, who fucking picked this one? <laughs> This was our audience choice, wasn't it? <laughs> I think it was mine, actually. Who fucking picked this one? The audience did. Right. The audience picked it. I think I, I put it forward. Let me not trash our audience in the episode. <laughs> no, trash me. It's fine. I don't mind. So I think Katie put this on the poll. So I'll just yell at her for picking yet again another three plus hour film that we've been subjected to. Oh, my God. Next next time we're not doing any three hour films. So, yeah, in, in closing, I'm surprised Katie did not mention the problem that she's mentioned before having with films, which is them sort of not landing on one side or the other, because part of the problem with this film was also that it seemed to not really have an opinion about Patton. Oh, I thought it loved him. I didn't mention it because I think that's the goal. Mm. I think the goal is to, as Frank McCarthy said, portray this unique individual in all of his complexities. And I don't think it necessarily does that right but it tries it it tries to portray Patton and have the audience judge him i don't know it seems pretty pro Patton to me but that is it is absolutely like i I think it picked a side i guess what i'm trying to say is i don't know if the film delivers any kind of message really especially if you're trying to show this quote-unquote complex figure 
then yeah, like show their actual negative sides, not just the ones that were made famous in the press. I'm sorry if you love this movie. Hey, good on you. I'm sorry. I did not like this movie. What are we doing next? So next week, we're going to do something completely different from 1958. The Vikings. Dan, you'll be happy that regardless of your feelings about the film, it's just under two hours. Yes. Woo! It's uh, directed by Richard Fleischer and is based on an old adventure novel called The Viking by Edison Marshall. It has Kirk Douglas and Ernest Borgnine and Tony Curtis and Janet Lee, which Ooh. is where... Tony Curtis and Janet Lee met and created Jamie Lee Curtis. Ah, it's amazing. I'm very excited. It is nuts. <laughs> it is in a place when England was not one country. So prior to mm. 1066, I believe. Yeah. So it had like different kings on the island. Probably our earliest time period so far that we've covered. The next one would be kingdom of heaven we haven't done a lot of ancient stuff so this will be interesting yeah this is going to be a different kind of warfare but it's done in the 50s so who the fuck knows how accurate it is my guess is not very and if you are listening to this in early-ish 2022 it is apparently available for free on tubi Okay, well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Check out our Facebook group at Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group if you want to see all the great memes and get involved in conversation. If you want to hear us talk about films that couldn't make the main war film feed but are somewhat related, our post-holiday special that came out is John Carpenter's The Thing. We subjected Liam to two John Carpenter films in a row. And I'm eternally grateful. You'll have to sign up for our Patreon for only $4 a month if you want to find out which one Liam liked and which one Liam hated. If any. Right. And you can do that at DangerClosePod.com forward slash support. So join us, help out the podcast, and get an extra episode where we talk about sci-fi, fantasy, comedy, and other war-related films. And you get an extra episode every month. Thanks for listening. See you guys on the next one. Bye. Goodbye.